Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. I want to address what I believe is a problematic theological imbalance. And it's, I, uh, this conversation is, uh, has, has come up again uh, after this week. There was a tragedy out in California. A young pastor, 30 years old, by the name of Jared Wilson, committed suicide. How many of you read about that? Just tragic. He was on Greg Laurie's staff, a church of about 25,000. He was a mental health advocate, uh, wrote a lot about depression and suicide and had just done this funeral for a gal that had committed suicide. It was suicide prevention week and then that night after taking his son to a ball game, he ended up taking his own life. It was tragic. And I'm not, I'm not going to address suicide and that. There's a lot of conversations going on about that. My concern is, is some of the emerging conversation in the heels of that. And I believe what it's done is it's highlighted a troublesome and dangerous theological imbalance. And so I want to talk about that because this, this is not a new issue. This is an issue that is, has come up more and more as time has gone on. Uh, and again, I'm not talking about suicide. I'm talking about the response to it. And I'm talking about this, this tension we live in between the already and the not yet. And I'm going to build a case for it. I hope I can communicate this morning. But uh, a few months back, we were, we were doing about a 17-year series on the Holy Spirit. And uh, I, made this sen- I made this comment. I said that if you're not comfortable living with tension, you will be uncomfortable with both the Spirit of God and with the Scriptures. Because we are forced to live within a tension. Matter of fact, one of the primary elements of the Scripture's teaching on the Holy Spirit, on His role in our life, on the ministry of the Spirit of God, more so than when we talk of Jesus' ministry, the ministry of the Father to us as Father, the ministry of the Son in redemption, the ministry of the Spirit, the, the Spirit of God is the, the agent in which we, with which we interact right now in this present dispensation, this present era of redemptive history, okay? Uh, the, the one that we are interacting with, it's, we, we t- we've talked about this before in, in uh, just common man's vernacular when it comes to salvation, God thought it, Jesus bought it, and the Spirit brought it. It's the Spirit that ministers to us what Jesus purchased at Calvary. But in the midst of his ministry to us, we live in this tension this, this, this tension between the already, what we're receiving from him, and the not yet, what we're longing for. And we live in that tension. And there's a tendency for us as believers to want to go to one extreme or the other. We want to, want to just camp out on one end of the pendulum as opposed to the other. And on the one end, we're saying the already, we get into this triumphalism that says we don't have problems because we're Christians. The problem is we live with each other at home. And so then we got to put our plastic Jesus face on and we come to church and pretend everything's okay. And it breeds hypocrisy and a disillusionment with the world when they begin to see that our slip is showing. 
you know, when they see that, you know, our flesh is hanging out sometimes. And so we lack credibility and it, it's this pie in the sky triumphalism that, re, that ignores the present reality in favor of what's coming. But there's a flip side, and this is the one I'm really concerned about. Because I believe, to a very great degree, this has been undermined in the present day. This thing of uh, triumphalism and pretending that we're something we're not. There has been tremendous progress in that regard. My dad has been in the ministry, I don't know, man, 60 years. He's probably been preaching the gospel for 60 years. And he's often told me, Dave, you guys, your generation is so much more open than my generation. He said, my generation, we just didn't talk about things. Matter of fact, my dad came from a very dysfunctional, broken family. He watched his mother burn to death at six years old, and, and then everything went downhill from there. He's very traumatized. Alcoholism, sexual immorality, molestation, uh, abuse. And then he came into the kingdom at 15 years old. And he was a very wounded young man, and, and when he, he went, he... He had quit school at, in the eighth grade. The principal of the school said, we will, we will graduate you to the eighth grade if you promise not, or to the ninth grade if you promise not to return. That was his aunt. She was the principal. And they said, if you won't return, we will graduate you to the ninth grade. And he quit at eighth grade. Went to Bible school at 15 years old and could barely read. I remember when I was a little boy, my dad's a pastor. He's studying the word uh, on his TV tray because he's working two full-time jobs, plus he's a pastor. Uh, he worked at a factory, then he was siding houses, then he's pastoring, and he's going to night school to learn to read. And I remember as a nine-year-old boy, him asking us, how, how do you say this word? And my dad went to some of the people that were running this Bible school and he began to talk about some of his issues and the, the pastor rebuked him and said, you don't ever talk about that stuff again. And the, the sense was that there's two issues. Number one, it's under the blood. In other words, it's resolved, you got saved, but don't trouble people with this and don't let people in on what you're struggling with. I myself was taught in Bible school, the first Bible school I went to, they told me, they said, listen, don't ever get close to the people you minister to. Don't, don't share things with them. Because if you get close to them, they won't respect you. And I'm like, if knowing me makes you disrespect me, maybe I shouldn't be in ministry. And when I first, I, I was two weeks into my first assignment as in full-time ministry. I got out of Bible school, went to work for Teen Challenge. I was there about two weeks. I can tell you right where I was standing in the chapel, worshiping the Lord, and the Lord invaded my little worship time. And he spoke this to me, and it was in direct contrast to what I was taught in Bible school. And the Lord began to build on that over the years, and this is what he told me. He said, David, ministry is letting people run their fingers around your wounds. Now, I didn't fully understand what he meant, but I knew it didn't line up with what I was taught in school. And over time, I've begun to realize, it, it, he was really alluding to 2 Corinthians, I want to say it's chapter 4, where Paul says, we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ. We don't preach ourselves. We are, we are jars of clay that carry the treasure. We don't preach ourselves because if all I do is tell you about my victories and how good things are going for me, then you're going to say Jesus works for him because he's such a great guy. But if I'm willing to share my wounds and find, and then I share that Jesus is the answer in the middle of that, you think, man, if God can use that mess, then he can use me too. 
So ministry is letting people run their fingers around your wounds. I think Christopher mentioned it last week. Ministry is one beggar telling the other beggar where to find the bread. And all of that is true. So I think there's been very, uh, there's been a lot of progress in dismantling this hypocritical pretend uh, fallacy put on a a facade that we have it all together. We've dismantled that to a very large degree. There's been a correction, but I would propose to you, and I'm very concerned about this, that there's been an overcorrection in the church. Because now we've gone to the other end of the pendulum, and now we're being very open about our struggle, but it's as if transparency, vulnerability, and authenticity is the goal. That I may be a mess, but I'm honest about it, and I'll just stay there. And as if that is the goal of the Christian life, that I own my stuff. I still have my stuff. I'm still a mess. My stuff still stinks, but at least I'm honest about it. And this theology reduces the Christian life to salvation. It reduces it to justification in theological terms. It reduces it to forgiveness void of freedom. And Jesus didn't just die to forgive us. He died to bring us into freedom. Now, in order for me to get into freedom, I must first own my stinky stuff. God loves me enough and accepts me and forgives me of my stuff when I get saved. But he also loves me enough not to leave me there. And salvation includes not just forgiveness of sin, but deliverance from that sin. And I'm really concerned because I read some of the comments, and this, just this recent tragedy has pushed this conversation to the forefront, but I've read this in regards to a lot of things. One of the more prominent ones is those, those believers, those born-again, spirit-filled believers who still struggle with same-sex desire, with homosexual desires. And when we reduce our walk with God to simply being forgiven then that results in a couple of dangerous options when we don't move into freedom. And let me just pause there. Let me pray, and then let me try to reframe this. Father, Lord, I I thank you for your word, and I thank you, Lord, that you instruct us for all of life. Now, Lord, I'm asking, God, that you would father us this morning, that you would instruct us that you would open the eyes of our understanding and, Lord, that we would live in the balance, the tension of your word. Lord, I ask that you'd give me words to speak and us ears and hearts to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So this whole, the, the theological existence that you and I live in as believers is we live between the already and the not yet. We've already received the kingdom, but we're still waiting for it to come. And you cannot understand this concept of the kingdom of God without embracing that reality. It is the, what theologians call the eschatological tension of the already and the not yet. We've got to live within that tension. That we already have it, but we're waiting for it. 
We're waiting for it, but I already have it. I have it in measure, but I don't have it in the fullness. And I would propose to you that revival is the breaking in of the fullness. We're getting more of what we already have, and we're, we're having to wait for less because more has already arrived. That's what revival is. It's the powers of the age to come breaking into the present and manifesting now. And so we live in this tension, but the fact is we're not going to have the fullness of the kingdom until Jesus returns. But we're not down here destitute waiting as if our only hope is some futuristic return of Jesus. We're enjoying the, 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 in, the breaking in of the kingdom already, but we don't have the fullness yet. And so we have to live within this. And our salvation is we are literally, we begin to steward the already into more of the not yet. We begin to gain access to more of the not yet. Uh, this, is, this is a theological side issue, but it's important for us to understand. You and I, as, as born again believers, already live in eternity. We have already received eternal life. We are living in the age to come, and that's why we have access to the power of the age to come. We are already living in the future kingdom, and it's breaking into the now. And that's why we can have victory in this present age. Healing is accessing the powers of the age to come and enjoying it right now. And faith bridge the, bridges the gap between our present nasty now and now and the future, uh, you know, the, the, the sweet by and by. It's faith bridges that and pulls that power into the present it, through healing, through deliverance, through renewing our mind that we begin to access the powers of the age to come. And so we're already living in the future. We're, we are a futuristic people. We are already living in the powers of the age to come. The fact is, you're already living in heaven. C.S. Lewis had this great phrase. He said, he said that for an unbeliever, hell is retroactive. The closer they get, now this isn't the great part. You're thinking, Pastor, that's great. No, I'm getting to the great part. He says that for the believer and the unbeliever, eternity is retroactive. So for the unbeliever, the closer they get, the closer they get to the end of their life, what they're entering into begins to break through and bleed back and they look at over their life and they evaluate it and they say sarcastically and cynically, all I've ever known is hell. But for the believer, it doesn't matter how tragic their life has been. At the end of their days, heaven begins to break in. They're beginning to put one foot in. And they look back and everything is reinterpreted. And they say, all I've ever known is heaven. We're already living that way. We reinterpret everything uh, our, our relationship with God reinterprets, edits our reality. We are living in the powers of the age to come. And that is the missing element of this thing of just being authentic about our stuff. Because we're not called to resign ourselves to being stuck. And there's, there's several reasons people fall into that faulty conclusion. And we need to confront this thing. We are not called to simply resign ourselves, you know, under the guise of authenticity to, re, to uh, resign ourselves to defeat. As if, well, being authentic about it and being vulnerable and transparent about it is the victory in and of itself. That is not the case. You can put it this way. When you are on a journey, 
You got to get a map to find out where you are. Now, today we use phones. I was on a trip recently, and I thought, man, what did we ever do before we had these phones? I mean, I'm, I'm having a hard time, you know, crossing about four lanes of traffic. <laughs> Going to miss my turn, and I got a little phone speaking to me. I have my phone speaking to me in a British male voice because it makes me feel wealthy. <laughs> turn here. I call him Jeeves, you know, and I pull it. But... When you look at a map, if you're going to map out your, your journey, you got to know two things, where you want to go and where you are right now. And if you don't have those two pieces, then a map is useless. You can tell a lot of things by a map, but it can't help you get there unless you know where you're at and where you're going. We start with where we're at, and we are. We're, we're all broken. There are things that God is presently dealing with us on, and it does us no good to hide that or pretend that's not the truth. Vulnerability is one step in the right direction. Matter of fact, uh, was, it, was it last week we were talking, was it this setting we were talking about how 1 John, uh, 1 John gives us this wonderful little outline and, and the path to freedom. He says, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's this little, just this short little message. What he's saying is this, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, that's transparency, that's vulnerability. I'm going to be open about what, where I'm really at. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to pretend it's not true. If I walk in the light as he is in the light, it says, then you will have fellowship with one another. Transparency will lead to intimacy. We'll have real relationship. And then he says, and then the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Purity comes from this intimacy with others because there are areas in your life you don't even know you're messed up until you get with the rest of us. <laughs> you think you're normal. Your family thinks it's normal. We all know better, you know. We get around you, we realize, whoo, that's a little dysfunctional. And you get around us and all of a sudden, oh, I guess that's not normal, you know. It's one of the reasons relation, that's just one of them. There, but relationships are necessary because in relationship, we begin to see our stuff. I've often thought, you know, my wife, my anger is my wife's fault. Okay, that's the faulty conclusion I came to, okay? But I didn't have an anger problem until I got married, so I thought it must be her because I didn't have this issue until she moved in. I had a, a guy, went, we started Teen Challenge staff, working on staff together, and he used to keep this little irritating sign on his door. It said, the foot that kicks over the barrel is not responsible for the contents of the barrel, but simply for manifesting it. I wanted to rip that thing up. I didn't know I had these things until I came into relationship and my wife began to tread into the selfish areas of my life that no one else had access to prior, heretofore, you know. The Lord told me just, I should have known. The Lord told me just before I got married, he said, Kathy will be the finger with which I probe your heart. I thought, that doesn't sound romantic at all. <laughs> Lord, this is not what I was signing up for. But I went ahead anyway, and uh, God used her because there were areas of my heart that no one had access to by virtue of I had never been in a relationship like marriage. And it was wonderful, but it was painful. <laughs> and I'm a better man for it. We need these relate Vulnerability, transparency is essential. That's where we start. That's where we look on the map. You are here, and there's a little, point, little arrow down there, and it's a pile of our stuff. You are here, and there's a little Odo coming up from it. You are here. And then there's 
You are, you know, this is your destination. And the first road we have to drive on to get there is the road of vulnerability, transparency, and intimacy. We're going to be open about our stuff. But it's not the destination. And too many people in today, they think, well, as soon as I'm open, I can just park the car and set up shop here. And we've never made the rest of the journey. God wants to bring us into the neighborhood of freedom and victory and take what he purchased at the cross and impose it on our stuff and fix our stuff so that we arrive over here and the triumph of the cross and the resurrection begins to be manifest in and through our lives. This prayer of heaven coming to earth Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If Jesus taught us to pray that, then there is no doubt he also called us to live that. Because we need to align our lives with what our mouths are praying or we'll negate with our life what our mouth is praying. So we're called to live this thing. God, let your kingdom invade my present reality. Well, the way in which God's presence invades the earth is through your life. But it's not disconnected from your person. It's not, yeah, we've talked about it many times. We start praying for revival. God, send revival, send revival. And God says, okay, I want to start with your marriage. You're like, whoa, 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 God. You know, now you're meddling. I I wanted revival out there. I didn't want you to deal in here. But that's where it starts. It's as I'm changed then God uses that, that the justification, the salvation that I experienced as an event steps me into a process where that justification begins to change me. I become sanctified. I mature, and that maturity begins to manifest through me into the world, and God brings change in the earth. But if I don't change, I am the first fruits of the transformation on earth. I am the first fruits of my own prayers. And if my prayers don't change me, they stop there. We can fast and pray, but if we resist the dealings of God personally, we cancel out all our fasting and prayer. You might as well go eat. At least you'll enjoy your tacos. And so when God is dealing with, when we're, we're crying out to God, we're on this journey where his kingdom is being made manifest and the Lord is zealously hungry to have everything he put in us manifest through us. But the problem, what's keeping that from happening is our sin issues. And it's not good enough for us just to be honest about it. Now that's a beginning. It's really not good enough for you to be dishonest about it. Because all you've done is added another sin issue to your ledger. The first step is to be honest and be open and transparent. But that transparency is to lead us into victory and not keep us. And just Whereas we think there's something noble about just being honest about our sin. We can be forgiven but not free. Now, one of the manifestations of this... Now you got to hear everything I'm saying here because some of you are thinking, well, what about the, this guy committed suicide? What are you saying about him? I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the response to this. I'm talking about those who struggle with homosexual desires. I, I read a lot. Uh, I, I try to keep my ear to the ground what I'm hearing in Christendom around the, in the church globally. And there is a, an emerging theology that says, if I'm honest, then that is righteousness. 
And that is the beginning, but not the end. That's the bud, but not the bloom. And God wants to bring us into the fullness. We need to be honest. But another troubling conclusion that people come to with this theology, and let's use the illustration of someone dealing with same-sex desires. And I just want to go on record. I don't believe that people who struggle with homosexuality choose to be attracted to the opposite sex. They don't just wake up and say, you know, I think I'm going to be attracted to boys. Or a girl says, I'm going to be attracted to women. That's, that's not what's going on there. It is, there's a woundedness in the human soul, and there are certain personalities that are more prone to that toward, than others because of certain situations. It's both nature and nurture. You see, the enemy is always going to try to leverage your environment to play off your DNA. Let me just pause there and, and uh, teach a little on that. I remember years ago, we were over in the old building, and there was a guy that was one of our board members by the name of Dave Folkerts. Anybody remember Dave Folkerts? There's a few of you still around. Dave and Barb Folkerts. Dave is now on staff at a large Calvary Chapel church down in uh, Florida. But we were, I was talking about how the enemy strategizes to play off your personality to bring you into sin. And he raised his hand because he worked for Pioneer Seed Company. He said, we have whole divisions of Pioneer Seed. In fact, the whole business model is based on us. He says we call it G by E, genetics by environment. And what they do is they they look at the genetics of a seed and they try to manipulate the genetics by the environment. And so what they're trying to determine, which seed will grow best in this particular environment and a dry environment and a very wet environment and a cold environment and and an environment that has a very short harvest season and all that. And they're, they're trying to get the greatest amount of yield out of that seed by manipulating the genetics by the environment. And when I was talking about that, he, he's, that's what he thought. And I thought, that's a brilliant illustration. Because that's what both God and the enemy do. God is after the good seed in you, and he is going to put you in the right soil. And sometimes he's got to add some fertilizer, if you know what I mean. <laughs> he's going to put a little manure in your environment to bring that out because he loves you and he wants, he is hungry to see all of you be manifest in the earth. He wants to see what he's put within you realized. Jesus died so that can happen. Not just to get you to heaven, so that heaven can manifest on earth through your life now. But the enemy is always manipulating your genetics by environment as well. And some of you, the abuse you've experienced, it was the enemy studying your life and trying to figure out how can he wound you early on to keep the good in you submerged. So genetics by environment, there there are circumstances that play off of us, and there are certain personalities. All of us have weaknesses and strengths, and you may be that personality that struggles with same-sex desire. You may be that personality that was like me, that I was an alcoholic. Now, I was told in rehab, you have a disease, Dave. It's not your fault. It's your dad. Your dad's a pastor, and he has these high, you know, these, these too stringent of requirements on your life. My, my probation officer told my dad, just let the kid drink some. He's a teenager. I was an alcoholic. My dad was so mad, he, no, and the guy slammed our front door, peeled out of the driveway, and years later, he told my dad, you were right, because I wrote him and told him where I'm at. 
But there was all these excuses saying that I had some disease. No, I didn't have a disease. But I did have a propensity towards certain types of sin that I had to choose not to exercise. You see, the danger of this mentality over here that says that my struggle is my identity. Let me put it this way. A lot of people interpret their ongoing pain in a given area as their personal evidence that God is not working in their life. That God hasn't delivered them, that it must be God's will. And people come to these wrong conclusions. And then they have to go back and twist the word of God to justify their situation. And I have all the compassion in the world for our struggles And we need to be honest about our struggles. But let's not try to wrap the word around our struggle. Let's move our struggles into the word and let's let's begin to reshape our struggle. And see, if I were to look at my alcoholism like some people look at their sexual desires, I would still be an alcoholic. I'd probably be dead. Like some of the guys I used to run around with and continue to drink. You see, pain is part of the process for us to be delivered. It is God's will. Because avoiding the pain is what caused sin in the first place. Let me just say this very clearly. If you will not embrace pain, you will end up justifying your sin. If you will not embrace the pain in your life, you will get into some really weird things to medicate it. Maturity demands that we face pain in our life. Let me say the flip side of this truth. That all sin is flight from pain. All of sin is a way for me to medicate my pain. And that is why embracing pain is always part of the process of our deliverance. Because the problem was my my sinful avoidance of pain. So the solution has to be me confronting and facing the pain. God is not a pain pill. Okay? God is not another type of medication to dull your senses. We don't, the gospel isn't a way for us to, oh, now it doesn't hurt so much and I'm going to pretend I'm delivered. And and too often, years back, that's the way it was preached. Well, it's all under the blood, brother. Well, yeah, but I'm still lacting it out. Well, it's under the blood, brother, just believe. No, you've got to face that pain. You've got to deal with that pain. And that's why there's a lot of this secret sin that would be breeded underneath the surface. And so we've got to face that. What do I, how do I base that on Scripture? 1 Peter chapter 4. Listen to what it says. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, right in there. It says this. It says, Christ suffered in his body. We all agree with that? Jesus suffered. And then it says, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Take his example. 
Jesus didn't run from the cross. He asked, Lord, if there's any other way, it's not like I'm looking for pain. He's, he wasn't some kind of weird person that was looking for pain. I've, I've had believers ask, say to me, I'm asking God to make me suffer. I'm like, I'm moving away from you, buddy. In case he answers right now, I'll talk to you from afar. I don't need to seek pain. Life has its, enough of its pain, but I also can't avoid it because we live in this fallen world and it hurts. And I've got to face it because the only other alternative is, is I medicate it and pretend it's not there. And so I've got to face the pain in my life. Jesus suffered in his body. He left us an example. You arm yourselves also with the same attitude. In other words, the mentality that Jesus had towards pain in his life is the one that you and I are to adopt. You man up and face it. Don't try to avoid it. Don't try to stick your head in the ground. Don't medicate it, whether by alcohol, by sexual immorality, or something as simple as just turning on your TV and zoning out for hours on end so you don't have to think about the hard situations you're dealing with. That's all medication. And it will keep you immature if you do that. And so Jesus suffered in his body. Arm yourselves also with the same attitude. And then he says this stunning statement. Now understand, this is the word of God. For he who suffers in his body is done with sin. If I had a mic, I'd drop it. Boom. And that's a profound statement. He who suffers in his body is done with sin. What's he saying? He's saying that the, at the root of all sin is an avoidance of pain in our life. So the enemy is out to leverage your pain, to poke on the pain in your life, to get you to relieve yourself of that pain in ways contrary to God's will. He may do that through people. He may do that through situations, demonic torment. And if we, don't, if we just avoid that stuff, we're never going to grow. We're never going to mature. But there's a lot of people that have a theology that that is our present existence and there is no deliverance and that we just sit here in our pain and some, one of the manifestations of that is people say, well, I guess it must be God's will that I have this disease. It's what I was told. I read an article in response to this tragic suicide of this pastor. This, this, well, someone read it to me. This, this woman writes, she said, oh, it reminded me of my son when he committed suicide. And he said, she said, I remember I heard the gunshot and I ran in the room. She said, I thought he was drunk because he was a drug addict and alcoholic, that he, but he loved Jesus his whole life. And she said, he took his life and I was telling him, just look into the eyes of Jesus. And this is what she said. She said, those that struggle with addictions are the brightest and most creative among us. The reason they struggle is because of their vast intelligence. Here's the problem with that. She framed it as an, uh, a disease that he was the victim of rather than getting, and I, I have all the compassion in the world. That is a tragic story. I would never say this to that woman without a whole lot of other preparatory comments. But the fact is, we all at the root have a moral choice to make in the face of suffering. And when we buy into this theology that there is no way out, that it's God's will for me to suffer, or that I need to avoid it and I need to medicate it through these other ways, these, these little roads that we go down, they leave us continuing in bondage and tragedy ensues. 
The best case scenario by buying into that is you will remain immature and never realize all that God has placed within you. And the worst case scenario is your life is derailed and it becomes a tragic story where you hurt others as well. We have got to learn to face pain. And when your ongoing pain becomes your personal evidence that God has not delivered you, you will accommodate sin in your life. Let me say it again. When the ongoing pain that you are experiencing, and we all have it in different forms and fashions, and I'm going to tell you, don't believe the lie that there's other people have life as a cakewalk. Everybody in this room has things in their life that they wouldn't want to varying degrees. And some seasons are worse than others. And Paul, you know how he refers to those as in Ephesians 6? The evil day. Anybody had one of those? How about an evil month or an evil couple, evil decade? Yeah, we, we've had those things happen. But there, are, there are times where the onslaught of hell is coming against us. Everybody goes through. The temptation that has seized you, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, is what? Common to man. Everybody has their struggles. But not everybody deals with it in the same healthy way. Some of us have very unhealthy coping mechanisms, and what we need to do is confront the theological underpinnings under that and make sure we're lining up with the word. And so when your ongoing pain becomes your personal evidence that you stand before God and you say, God, this is the evidence that you have not delivered me. This is the evidence that you are unfaithful. I've tragically had many conversations with with young men, young women that were struggling with same-sex desire, and they say, I gave God a year, and I'm still struggling, so it must be his desire. He must have made me that way. In other words, if I'm in pain, and God hasn't delivered me from my pain, then I must be the exception to the rule, and I must be able to live this out. And the fact is, here, here's the thing. Your pain is the process that will bring you deliverance. And so if you look at pain as proof you're not being delivered, you will park it in the midst of your stuck state. Does that make sense? So we need to understand that pain is not evidence God's not working. The fact that you're feeling it, turn towards it, face it, talk about it, bring it to the Lord and confront this thing because that is the process by which you get free. I want to give you my own testament. I know some of you are like, Pastor, we've heard it so many times. I, this, this is the best testament, I mean, the example I can give you, okay? I was a teenage alcoholic. I never drank till I was 14 years old. The first time I took a drink, I, studied, I, I discovered the secret to life. <laughs> I was downtown Ottumwa at the McDonald's. We're all hanging out, and someone hands me a beer. I slammed it down, chugged two beers, that's all I could take. And all of a sudden, one of the cutest girls in the, in the grade before me pulls up in a pickup truck. Next thing you know, I'm cru cruising around with one of the most gorgeous women in the school. And I'm like the life of the party. I'm cool. I'm suave. I don't have any, any kind of inhibitions. And I was hooked. Within two years, I was, end up, I was living on the streets. I ended up in a drug rehab. I already started, they, they did tests and said, You're, you already got liver damage at, at this age. I mean, I really liked it. But the pain underneath that, that I was trying to medicate by the alcoholism, 
was the insecurity socially. My greatest fear was public speaking. The thing I feared more than anything, when I was in English lit class, I had it first hour, and we'd have to read out loud, so I'd get a bottle of whiskey and I'd get, I'd get lit. And I'd go into English lit and so that I could read out loud. Because I, I just was so insecure. When I got saved, God didn't deliver me of that pain. I still had tremendous anxiety attacks. I still do at times. There's still times, certain settings will, will spark that. I would have the, I would feel like I'm going to crawl out of my skin. This panic, my, my, my chest would start beating. They'd call on me. My, I'd start shaking. I looked like I had Parkinson's, you know. And, and uh, I'd start, start, my voice would crack, and it was humiliating. And everybody would start to laugh, and then they'd say, oh, someone else read, you know. It was humiliating. So I thought, I'm never doing that again. I'm going to get drunk. When I got saved... God didn't deliver me of that anxiety attack. I had to face that pain. But I made a decision that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live free of alcohol. I am never going to drink again because I would rather live in that awkward, anxiety-ridden state and have Jesus than live drunk, relieved of the anxiety, but not have him. I didn't have any conception whatsoever that that was the pathway to freedom. I didn't know that. I just thought, I, I really thought that I would be that way the rest of my life. I thought I'd always be the guy sitting in the corner kind of excusing myself every 10 minutes to get out of the room just because I'm in the hot sweats and I'm shaking and I'm, I'm just anxiety ridden. And I remember telling the Lord, I said, God, this is great. I'm going to heaven, but I'll be a mute till I get there. God cured me. Ask my wife. I, I said, I'll be a mute till I get there. I, I, I can't talk to people. And I remember thinking that, and on the other side of the classroom, the Sunday school classroom, I was in, over in Des Moines that morning. This guy who, ends up, who ended up being a pastor up north, he just, out of the blue, quoted this scripture. You know, in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And that thing came out of his mouth like an arrow into my heart. And it was like I had this revelation, and I thought, that's it. I used to get drunk with wine. Now the key is... Be filled with the Spirit. I need to, I need to drink the new wine. And, and I've often said, it's not a coincidence, it was in the fifth of Ephesians. Because I used to go to the fifth a lot. I had a new fifth. But it was, it was so I, when, when I was in Bible school, other people would get up and just go to class. I would literally, I'd, I'd get up like 4.30 in the morning and I'd have to spend an hour and a half with God. Just I needed strength to face the day. I needed to be full of him. I needed to hear from him every morning to go out and just walk through life. I had to face those things. I had to, I had to be under the influence. I wasn't just a weekend drinker, okay? I couldn't be one of those people that just drinks at church. I, I was a person, my whole, they say you're a problem drinker if your whole social life, uh, you know, uh, orbits around alcohol. My whole social life orbited around being filled with the Spirit. And then you're really bad when you have your own secret stash. You know, you don't even drink with others, you drink alone. That's, that was me. I mean, I had, I, I was desperate because I couldn't face life without him. And you know what? He didn't deliver me of my weakness. He didn't deliver me of that pain. He became the answer 
to it. And I didn't realize that embracing that and facing that and saying, God, if I have to live this way the rest of my life, I will not medicate this this weakness, I will not medicate this pain through sinful means. If I've got to live this way the rest of my life, I'll sit in the corner of the room and shake and sweat and have my voice crack, but at least I'm going to heaven, I've got you. Never realizing that in facing that pain, embracing that pain, I was going to develop the social skills to exist like a normal person. I had to learn to face the pain. Now, some of you are saying, Pastor, we're not so sure you've made it yet. That, but hey, I'm telling you, I'm a lot better than I was. It, pain is part of the process. And so, listen, if you're struggling with some secret pain, some secret loneliness, some bent towards evil. Mine, I had a bent towards the evil of alcohol. When I got high, I really liked it. And it destroyed my life. I remember... Getting, being drunk for days on end, and I would write myself a note, you got to get help. I knew my life, I was, I was heading for hell and, a, and an early death as a teenager, and I would scrawl, get help. And then I'd wake up in some strange place a few days later, and I'd find some note scrawled in chicken scratch, get help. I think, what is that? There was this desperation in me. I was bound. And I'm telling you, if you have, if there's some torment some pain in your life that's driving you towards sin i'm telling you face the pain and bring other people into it but it's not just enough it's not enough just to acknowledge it yes we celebrate vulnerability transparency but it's the beginning of the journey not the destination and don't allow the enemy to create a narrative where your present struggle is proof that it's God's will for you to stay there. Where your present struggle is proof that God's not faithful to you. That God's not delivering me. This tragic story this woman was writing about her son and she said, she said, my son always wondered why, well, God delivered other people and I prayed and I still struggle with depression. You see, in her mind and in his mind, they interpreted Deliverance as, oh, the pain is suddenly gone. As if everybody else doesn't have the pain they're struggling with. And the reality is everybody else has that same pain to varying degrees, but they've developed the, the, the coping skills to deal with that. And we all have our area. Yours may be depression. Yours may be, maybe, maybe at an early age you got sucked into uh, internet porn, and that is your medication, and that's what you run to, to to deal with the pain, the loneliness, the frustration, whatever in your heart. Maybe yours is food. Maybe it's fill in the blank. You know what yours is. The fact is, what we've got to do is we've got to face that pain and say, this is the pathway. Dealing with this is the pathway to my freedom. Don't allow the enemy to reduce salvation to forgiveness. God intends to make you free, but the pathway to freedom is facing that pain in your life and saying, you know what, if I've got to live this way, listen, if you struggle with same-sex desires, you need to come to the place where you say, if I've got to live the rest of my life single and I still have this attraction, I don't understand it, I'm not going to justify it, but I'm not going to act on it. I, what it is, it is what it is. A desire is a desire. But I'm not going to sin by satisfying that desire. I'm going to live with this and I'm going to stay true to Jesus. 
And if you can't come to the place, whatever your struggle is, that you say, if I have to live this way the rest of my life, I'm going to stay true to Jesus, then you are always leaving the door open to falling back into that sin. You've got to say, if, 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 if I live the rest of my life this way, this is how I'm going to live. But I, I am not going to allow my pain to become a justification to sin. And I'm telling you, on the authority of God's word, he who suffers in his body is done with sin. Your deliverance comes out of your willingness to face the pain in your life. And if you will face that, and often you need to face it with others. Let me just land it here. It's, it's 12 one. Who will give me five minutes? Just five minutes. One, five, 10, 15, 20, 20. Okay. <laughs> this, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure I've shared this before. I, I know I've preached on it years ago, but uh, man, it was probably back in 1987. I was down in Mexico. We're sitting down to a real Mexican meal. I mean, that's the glory. Missions and real Mexican food. I mean, I just, you feel that? Do you feel that coming in the room? Woo, Lord. And uh, we're just getting ready to eat, and the Lord said, get up fast, I want to speak to you. I'm like, <laughs> that is suffering, brother. And uh, the grace of God came on me. I was able to overcome the temptation. Uh, and it, it was pure grace. And uh, so I went, and I remember going out into the city square, walking around this fountain, and the Lord began to speak to me about Jericho, that enemy fortress on the border of our promised land, that God has a promised land for you. He has things that he has in store for you. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. There's homes you did not build, vineyards you did not plant. It's all waiting for you, but you must displace the enemy that presently occupies your promised land. There's an interesting little verse in Deuteronomy that says, God told Moses, he said, I'm not going to drive the enemy off the promised land all at once, lest the wild animals overtake it. In other words, he will release it to you to the, your ability to steward it. Because if he gave it to you all at once, it'd be too much for you. The, the wild animals would overtake your promised land. And so we go in and we begin to displace the enemy. But at the beginning of the promised land, on the border of the promised land, was this enemy citadel, Jericho. And what the Lord began to speak to me about was this, that every Jericho, every stronghold has a harlot. And the key to taking Jericho was finding Rahab. Rahab was the harlot in Jericho. And what did God do? He sent in spies those brothers and sisters that'll go in and check out and look through our promised land. Look, we, we, bring, we allow them to come in and look through the strongholds in our life, those, those belief systems that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, those things that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. And it says they went to Rahab's house. She was a prostitute, and the house of the prostitute, it says, was part of the city wall. That's significant. This prostitute lived on the city wall. The city wall was what was keeping them from their promised land. 
And so she hid them, and they made a covenant with her that if you hang a red cord out your window, then we will spare you and your family. And so I guarantee you, she had a big family reunion that day. They're all crammed in the little apartment of the prostitute with a little red cord hanging out. And when the walls fell down, there had to have been one little sliver of wall kind of rocking in the wind. <coughs> little condo up there with a, full of the prostitute's family. Help! You know, the dust is selling there. Because that part was preserved. And here's the point. Your strongholds, the place where the enemy camps out in your life, has a harlot that God wants you to understand. What is that thing that sells you out again and again and again and again? The secret to taking down the stronghold, the belief system, is to discern the pain that you built it around. What is the, the pain that you're trying to compensate for that you built these justifications, these belief systems, so that you can protect it? And what God wants to do is expose the harlot, but he will not necessarily deliver you of the harlot. Rahab was not killed when the walls fell, was she? You know what happened? She was folded in, and she became the great, 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 great grand. She was part of the lineage of Christ. Out of the lineage of this prostitute came our Savior. And God wants to take the, the weakness in your life, the harlot in the stronghold, and he wants to use that weakness for his glory. He wants to use that to bring Christ to the world. He wants to take people that are so insecure, they got to get drunk before they go to English lit. And he wants to use them to preach. He wants to use people that struggled with sexual immorality to set other people free. He wants to use people that were alcoholics to teach other people how to live in wholeness and be heroic in facing their pain. And so what God wants to do is he wants to deliver us, but we've got to face the pain. You've got to define the Rahab because that's where your deliverance is. You've got to embrace it and face it, and that is the pathway to deliverance. Let's pray. Father, let's go, go, ahead, go ahead and stand, would you? Father, we thank you for your word. Just raise your hands, would you? Just raise your hands to the Lord. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. Jesus, you said, hanging from the cross, I thirst. And Lord, we know you continue to thirst for the fullness you put within us. That everything that you put within us would be realized. Lord, I ask God that you would give us a holy resolve to side with you in that process. Lord, I ask that you would deliver us from our weaknesses. Lord, deliver us from the ways that we relieve ourselves of pain. Father, forgive us for looking at you as another pain management system. Lord, you call us to be heroic and to walk it out. We thank you for it, Father. And now, Lord, I pray that your spirit would come on those this morning, Lord, that this resonated with, that are in the midst of the battle, that have bought into lies, and, Lord, that you would deliver them. Lord, I pray that a bright and shining hope would break through the clouds from their future into their present and give them hope to go through the journey of embracing their pain. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. 
If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.